Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This episode was made possible in part by special patrons Philip Dixon and Anushka Maiden. If you'd like to support the show, feel free to on Patreon from as little as £1 a month. Now, back to the regular schedule programming. 30th of July, 1975, Bloomfield, Michigan. At 2.15pm, a man stands at a payphone outside of a restaurant by the highway. He's not happy. He calls his wife to state as much. The men he's waiting for haven't shown up, and he's always been a stickler for punctuality. His wife isn't too concerned, but she tells him that nobody's left any messages for him. He says he'll wait a while longer, this is an important meeting, but he'll be home by four. There's steak for dinner, and he takes pride in his grilling. As the man stands beside the road preparing to make another phone call, two men walk up to him and shake his hand. The man you see is the top dog. His name is Jimmy Hoffa, and he's one of the most powerful men in the United States. Hoffa was the president of the Teamsters Union, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters from 1957 to 1971. Not long ago, he'd been in prison. The Teamsters itself was the union that represented truckers, drivers, and chauffeurs, anyone who drove for a living, which, in 50s America, was really starting to take off. Gone were the days of horse and cart and unreliable old-school cars. Massive trucks could now reliably carry tons of cargo coast-to-coast, and in North America, the US, and later Canada, this meant big bucks. The term Teamster originally referred to the teams of horses pulling cards, but their power and influence grew vastly under Hoffa's guidance. He'd been in the game for a long time, you see, having risen up the ranks in the 30s. He'd made the Teamsters what it was by 1975, the most powerful union in America, possibly even the world. You see, being a union of drivers, they controlled the logistics that kept the US in business. Gone were the days when the railroad was the lifeline of the US, now truck driving was the blood in the veins. And if the demands of the Teamsters weren't met, then those veins could and would be cut and the blood would stop flowing. At the height of the Cold War, and the Vietnam War going increasingly badly, it was ever more important that capitalism be shown to be strong, and the Teamsters had been accused many times of having communist sympathies. But whilst those may have been exaggerated, there was one connection the Teamsters really did have with the American Mafia. You see, the Teamsters and the Mafia were, by 1975, inseparable. This was in part thanks to Jimmy Hoffa, but it was a process that began before he was even in the union. The first Teamster president, Cornelius Shea, lost his support due to endless trials surrounding him. After his presidency, he got involved with the Chicago outfit of Al Capone. The second Teamster president, Daniel J. Tobin, who held the seat for a very long time, was better for their image. He was a strong anti-communist and anti-fascist, 
good friends with Roosevelt and helped to organize a no-strike promise throughout the Second World War. He also supported industrial unionism, lumping all of the unions in one industry under the same roof rather than craft unionism, which divides them by trade. This policy meant that from 1907 till 1952, the Teamsters expanded from 75,000 to over 1 million members. But the organized crime was still there, lurking in the background. Tobin had done well to keep the image squeaky clean, but after his resignation, things started to fall apart. Hoffa was a man of action, a motivator, an agitator, a shaker and mover. He was the guy who you wanted heading up a union, a man who can organize the strikes and play hardball to get the concessions. He was also a man after his own interests. When President Dave Beck took over from Tobin, Hoffa immediately began the challenge. Now was his time. Beck was corrupt. Hoffa knew that because Hoffa had campaigned for him to secure his own vice presidency position. But he bided his time and in 1956 began a policy of openly challenging all of Beck's major decisions. Around this time, the Mafia involvement grew. You see, the Mafia knew that getting in good with the Teamsters, an organization that had fleets upon fleets of cargo containers and hauling trucks, would be nothing but a good thing. So they'd courted them in the 20s and 30s, and that bubbled up over time until the two would become linked. And Hoffa's rise to power would cement that bond. During his campaigning against Beck, he was approached by Johnny Dio, a mobster. And this didn't go unnoticed by John McClellan, a US senator whose committee was investigating mob involvement in the unions. McClellan's committee would run the union ragged. Beck fled his subpoenas and the mob's influence was laid bare. There had even been a plot in Oregon to overthrow the state legislatures and stack them with union activists who would be in the pocket of the Mafia. Hoffer was arrested for attempted bribery in 57, but got off those charges. Beck, however, was indicted for tax evasion and resigned. Jimmy Hoffer was now president of the Teamsters. But the heat on Hoffer was hotter than ever. The McClellan committee had absolutely not forgotten about him, and now several investigations were opened into him. Not that this stopped any of the things he was being investigated for, mind. The American Federation of Labor Unions had actually expelled the Teamsters due to their corruption, and this didn't do much to ease that. The biggest scandal was yet to come. Hoffa had, since the 50s, been siphoning money from the Teamsters' pension fund to give to the Mafia as loans. The Mafia then used this money, in the form of legitimate loans, to build casinos in Las Vegas, turning it from a backwater nowhere into the most opulent gambling paradise in the world. This was a move that was not uncontroversial within the Teamsters itself, but it built Vegas. Ever heard of the Stardust Resort, the Fremont, the Dunes, the Desert Inn, the Four Queens, Circus Circus, the Aladdin, Caesar's Palace? All built with Teamsters money, all owned and operated by the mob. Strictly speaking, these were loans to private individuals, but anyone with half a brain could see the exchange. Hoffa gave the mob money and manpower, and the mob took care of any problems Hoffa might be having, as well as having helped him get elected. But when JFK came to power, everything changed, because in spite of the fact that Hoffa had supported JFK, Bobby Kennedy was now Attorney General, and it was time for the Piper to be paid. In 1964, he was rung up on charges of witness tampering, and after three years of appeals, he went to prison with a sentence of 13 years. He continued to be president of the Teamsters until 1971, but he had also deepened connections with the mob, because whilst in prison, he enjoyed a positive and some negative associations with some of the more powerful figures locked up alongside him. Harper had a stooge, Frank Fitzsimmons acting as president in his absence. But the mob began to like Fitzsimmons better. Hoffa was a pain in the ass, combative, argumentative, and very much aware of how much the mob owed him whilst being unaware of how much he owed them. Fitzsimmons did what he was told. 
This was exacerbated when Nixon pardoned Hoffer in 71. Old Tricky Dick Nixon cut him a deal. After Hoffer resigned as the President of the Union, he commuted his sentence to time served, releasing him with a pardon on the condition that he undertook no Union activity until 1980. But if you thought that meant Hoffer was out of the game, then you had another thing coming. Hoffer didn't think so. By 1973, Hoffer was drawing up plans to take back the presidency of the Teamsters. He was rallying supporters whilst attempting to find a loophole to prove he'd never made any agreement with Nixon. But the winds had changed. The mob liked Fitzsimmons and a return of Hoffer meant not only more difficulty in getting what they wanted, but all of Hoffer's heat right back on top of them. So, in 1975, Hoffer's preparing to meet with some men who will hopefully be the key to his re-election. What this is, is a peacemaking between him and the mob, burying hatchets to pave his way back to power. Chief among those attending is Tony Provenzano, Tony Pro. He'd been a teamster himself alongside being a powerful mafioso, a member of the Genovese crime family of New York. Pro and Hoffer had fallen out when they were both in prison together, and Pro had one of those reputations for not being a guy you crossed. But there was a mediator, Tony Jack, Anthony Giacolani, a local Detroit-made man and his younger brother Vito offered to set up a peace meeting. Hoffa's son James, who incidentally is the current president of the Teamsters, smelled something fishy, but Hoffa was hell-bent on the presidency. If you're not top dog, you're a mongrel mutt waiting to be put down. So they were going to meet at the Maccas Red Fox restaurant. 2pm was the allotted time, but the Mafia men were late, it seems. On the way, he'd tried to call into his friend Louis Linto, who'd helped him arrange the sit-down, but Linto was at lunch. Linto claims Hoffer called him around 3.30, again complaining of the mob's lateness. The FBI placed that call earlier in the afternoon. Hoffer was then seen getting into a maroon car, a Lincoln or a Mercury, with three other people. They then drove off, and Jimmy Hoffer was never seen again. When he heard Hoffer didn't come home that night, Linto swung by the restaurant the next day, Finding Hoffa's car unlocked, he called the cops and the FBI were put on notice. Despite a $200,000 reward from the Hoffa family, nothing came up. His daughter thought he was dead already. She'd had a premonition, you see. Hoffa slumped over wearing a dark-coloured polo shirt. That's exactly what he'd been wearing when he was last seen. Evidence was found. A car matching the description of the one he was seen in with Hoffa's scent in it detected by police dogs belonging to Tony Jack's son. But nothing concrete. Tony Jack and Tony Pro denied everything. There was no meeting that day. They were in different states. They had alibis to prove it. In December 82, Hoffa was declared legally dead. Since then, the rumors have only grown. Many claim they know what happened. There was even a movie made recently. But despite the FBI's files being released and some pretty convincing stuff, no solid conclusion has ever been reached. You could argue that's what happens when you put yourself up on a pedestal like that. All you do is make it easier for everyone to take aim at you, and when you know they're aiming at you, you'd better be sure they won't hit. Today on Demystified, we look at arguably the most famous disappearance of all time, Jimmy Hoffa. Today on Demystified, we look into the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. This is one that's a little US-centric, but equally I'd wager a fair few people beyond North America know who he was. Simply put, at one point in time, Jimmy Hoffa was, arguably, one of the most powerful men in the whole world. I'm not talking about political power, the power to go to war or anything like that. 
He had the US's economy in the palm of his hand, the mob watching his back. He was using the Teamsters pension fund to expand Las Vegas into what it is today. And then he wasn't. First he had his fall from grace in the 60s. He'd played the strong man, getting the Teamsters to elect him, and it hadn't endeared him to the establishment, so he shook hands with the devil and went in with the mob. And he went down for it. He was bound to. He'd been gaining heat since the 30s and he hadn't stopped. Bobby Kennedy got him in his sights and pulled a metaphorical trigger. And then, supposedly, somebody else got him in his sights and pulled a literal one. He disappeared. His plan to get back into the Teamsters was not very well thought out. It was clear to everyone, even Hoffa's own family, that the mob weren't happy with him, and the one thing you don't do when you're in the mob's bad books is go and make a scene. And it's exactly what Hoffa did. He'd given them the perfect man in Fitzsimmons, and now was trying to ruin everything that they'd worked hard to take away from him by clawing his way back into the Union. But before we look specifically at Jimmy Hoffa, let's have a quick history lesson on the mob. So the Mafia in the US, that is to say the Italian-American Mafia, known as the Cosa Nostra, meaning our thing, dates back to the 1860s. Sicilian immigrants came over to the US and the crime families that ruled over in Sicily sought to sink their hooks there. At that time, the US was in turmoil due to the aftermath of the Civil War, so they got there in. But immigrants were finding it hard to succeed in the US. The Civil War had sparked a massive nativist sentiment in cities along the East Coast, a desire to prevent more foreigners from entering. Some of this eye went to the Irish, as explored in another Martin Scorsese film, Gangs of New York, and some went to the Italians. As waves upon waves of Italians immigrated to the US, mostly from Sicily, they found it increasingly difficult to get out of places like the Little Italies in New York and Philadelphia, and finding legitimate work wasn't always easy, as that Anglo-American preference that dogged the Irish also affected the Italians. And so, many turned to crime. After prohibition was put into law in 1919 with the Volstead Act and the 18th Amendment, however, things went into overdrive. You see, the Mafia realised that prohibition, whilst genuinely quite a popular social issue, was also not popular with those who wanted to drink, which was most people. So, those willing to run liquor, like, I don't know, people already involved in organised crime, maybe, could go very far. And Canada to the north was both politically stable, unlike Mexico to the south at the time, and still producing alcohol at full tilt. The border wasn't very secure, and they had connections up there. And so the mob began making money hand over fist. This was exacerbated by Mussolini's rise to power in the 20s, triggering another wave of immigrants coming over from Italy. More people fresh off the boat, more people looking for jobs, greeted in their native language by fellow immigrants with offers of very gainful employment. Now, the criminals were of course a minority of the immigrants, but it did also happen that Mussolini's crackdown on the Mafia in Sicily meant that a large chunk of those fleeing Mussolini were already well acquainted with the Mafia. At this time though, the mob wasn't one entity. New York, along with the other regional outfits like Chicago, Philadelphia, Atlantic City and New Jersey, all had their own families and their own bosses. Each was jostling with the others to become top dog. Something had to give, and in February 1930 it did. The Castilla-Marese War was a massive gang conflict that rocked New York and had several important consequences. Firstly, the winning faction led by Salvatore Manzanano established the five families of New York. But after Manzarano declared him capo di tutti capi, the boss of all bosses, he was assassinated on the orders of one of the most famous gangsters of all time, Lucky Luciano. Luciano established the Commission, which is relevant to our story. Ever wondered why the mob in New York was doing things in Las Vegas, or how people from Chicago had connections in Detroit? The Commission is why. It's basically how the mob is run to this very day. Luciano was popular. He could have made himself boss of bosses, 
but he abolished the title. The arrangement had a council set up, representatives of the five New York families, and the families in Buffalo and Chicago, being headed up famously by Al Capone, would all share power and cooperate and coordinate. Now, all the families of the mob acted under one banner, and ideally there would be no more gang wars. In the 50s, Philadelphia got a seat and various other cities are either associates or represented. In the Second World War, Luciano even used it to work with the Navy and the Secret Service in Operation Underworld, where they allegedly used their mob connections back home to help organize the invasion of Italy. During Hoffa's time, the heads of the commission were Don Vito Genoves from 57 to 59, Joseph Joe Bananas Bonanno from 59 till 63, and finally Don Carlo Gambino from 63 till 76. It was an elected position to remove the connotations of the one-man rule era and to get rid of the traditions of those known as the Mustache Peets, the mafiosos who'd emigrated as adults in the 20s rather than those who had grown up in the US in the 20s and 30s, referred to as the Young Turks. No relation to the other meaning of that name. So that's how we get the all-powerful mob that we know from this story, the one that has the eyes and ears everywhere and the hands in every pocket, rather than the one from the era of Prohibition locked in a perpetual multi-sided gang war on both sides of the Atlantic. Now let's look at the man himself, the top dog, Jimmy Hoffa. James Riddlehofer was born in Brazil, Indiana, proof that they really do have every place name under the sun in the United States, in 1913, to mixed ancestry. Pennsylvania Dutch, breed German, on his father's side, and Irish on his mother's. It's relevant for later. His father died when he was seven and the family moved to Detroit where Hoffa worked full-time jobs to support the family. This was also where he got his union start. As a teenager, he helped organize workers in a grocery chain he worked in, becoming head of its union and also helped organize better pay for dock workers. He also met his wife, Josephine Posivac, in a non-union strike action and they had two children, Barbara Ann and James P. Hoffa. After leaving his grocery chain in 1932, he joined up with the Teamsters as a union organiser and rose quickly through the ranks. He was headstrong, bullish, and took no attitude from anyone. This made him the man to organise union stuff. No one could intimidate him, and his force of will and tenacity earned him great respect. His role as an organiser in the Midwest put him in the right place at the right time. His use of quick striking and secondary actions, as well as leveraging the power of one union to help another, quickly grew the Teamsters, and they then began absorbing other unions. In 1941, however, Hoffa had his first run-in with the Mafia. The Teamsters are in a turf war with some other unions in Detroit, and they're not budging, so Hoffa talks to some people who know some people. The mob helps Hoffa out, but they demand something in return. Once you're in with the mob, you never get out. The mob gets rid of the other unions, the Teamsters grow, and so does Hoffa. But their teeth were sunk in. And it would come back to bite both of them. In 1947, Jimmy Hoffa met Bill Buffalino. William Buffalino was one of the lawyers for the Teamsters, who then became Hoffa's personal lawyer. But he was also connected to the mob, because his cousin, Russell Buffalino, was the head of the Buffalino crime family in Pennsylvania. Philadelphia was eyeing up seats on the commission, and so it was relatively volatile ground as far as organized crime went. In 1955, a new man joins in with the Buffalinos as an associate, one Frank Sheeran, better known as the Irishman. Sheeran was a teamster, and if his and other stories are about him to be believed, a contract killer for the mob, known as a house painter. Sheeran was introduced to Hoffa via Russell Buffalino, and the two became friends, in part due to their shared Irish heritage in a world dominated by Italians. The Italians and Irish gangs had jostled for power, and in Chicago, the Italians won. So Hoffa begins to rise through the ranks of the Teamsters while getting increasingly deep with the mob. Despite having never actually been a truck driver, in 1952, Hoffa becomes vice president of the Teamsters under David Beck, 
after Daniel J. Tobin had held the presidency since 1907. Things are looking for a shake-up in the Teamsters, and Hoffer is eyeing up the hot seat. So he reaches out to his mob connections for help. In 1956, he gets Johnny Dio, New York man about town, to create what are called paper locals, chapters of the union that have few, if any, actual people on the payroll. Effectively, the union equivalent of a rotten borough, a constituency where there are so few voters, if any, outside of a landowner, that it takes basically no effort to win the votes. And the union had a system that was kind of like the electoral college. Delegates from chapters across the country give their votes. So invent a bunch of fake chapters and you get all of the votes. But despite this scheme being unveiled and causing a pretty sizable hit to his reputation, Hoffa won the election of 1957, and Beck was sent to prison on charges of tax evasion. The McClellan Committee, headed up by Bobby Kennedy, was looking to expunge mob influence from unions. But if that was the goal, that Hoffa's replacing Beck did not help, because now that Hoffa was in charge, it was time for his plan to take full swing. At this time, by the way, 90% of transportation in the United States was controlled by the Teamsters. The big goal? Las Vegas. Hoffa loaned the Mafia millions of dollars out of the Teamsters' pension fund to construct numerous incredibly luxurious and lavish Vegas casinos. At this time, Vegas was starting to grow from a literal nowhere to a place known as a gambling town. Nevada's lax laws on gambling in general were making it a popular destination for that sort of thing, and a resurgence of the mob post-World War II had only grown their influence. And, after alcohol was legal, they needed new revenue streams. The relationship was symbiotic. Hoffa loaned money to the mob, who needed clean money to build the casinos legitimately, and in return, he got favourable returns on those loans as the money started to come in from the casinos. But it gave Hoffa the impression that he and the mob were business partners, equals, helping each other out, which is not the perspective that the mob had. To them, Hoffa was just an asset, a person in their pocket, not a business partner. He was someone to be bribed, not paid. It also didn't help that there was an ethnic tension, Hoffa was not one of us, as they saw it. He could never be more than an associate because of his heritage. And he didn't want to be necessarily, but it did create an epistemic distance between Hoffa and his contacts. It also endeared him to people like Frank Shear and the Irishman, who was experiencing basically the same thing. So after several decades at the head of the Teamsters, in 1967, Hoffa goes to jail. JFK and Bobby Kennedy had begun the process of trying to oust him, which enraged Hoffa because he saw himself as a vital part of JFK's electoral success. But Bobby Kennedy saw his priority as role as the Attorney General, and the seemingly endless list of crimes that Hoffa was linked to only ever grew. They finally got him on mail fraud, attempted bribery, and jury tampering. But in 1971, Nixon pardoned Hoffa, on the grounds that he'd stay out of the unions until 1980. Hoffa doesn't like that. So he starts up a campaign to become president of the Teamsters again. As we mentioned earlier, Frank Fitzsimmons was the president, and whilst he was less popular and charismatic than Hoffa, the mob liked him a lot better. In 75, federal investigators discovered that hundreds of millions of dollars had supposedly vanished out of the Teamsters' pension fund. How that happened was unclear, but that discovery was made two weeks before Hoffa disappeared. On the 30th of July 1975, Hoffa was last seen outside the Maccus Red Fox. Hoffa was supposedly going to meet Tony Pro and Tony Jack, the members of the Mafia, who Hoffa knew, and it was supposedly a peace talk between Hoffa and Tony Pro to make amends for a confrontation that had happened whilst both were in prison together. The feud had started before prison, when Hoffa didn't loan Pro money to start up a restaurant. But then allegedly Hoffa had made a comment to Provenzano involving the phrase, you people, a dig at his Italian heritage. Again, we see this being an issue. 
Harper had long been suspected of such sentiments by the Mafia, and their standoffish treatment of him for exactly the same reason didn't help matters, but it was an insult that Tony Pro couldn't take lying down. Now he was out of prison though, Hoffa wanted back in. He felt the resistance and was starting to become a little bit paranoid that the mob might try something, not unwarranted, as he had mentioned earlier, become increasingly popular with the mob, and it didn't help more that Hoffa had allegedly threatened to turn informant if the mob ever made any move against him, attempting to leverage his knowledge of the pension fund activity and self-defense. But the meeting was delayed. Hoffa called his wife from a payphone to complain that the two hadn't showed up. He made a similar call to Louis Linteau, his friend. Witnesses recall seeing Hoffa standing around the parking lot of the restaurant as though waiting on someone. And the witnesses are interesting because usually eyewitness testimony is very unreliable. But Hoffa was A, very recognisable, and B, one of the most famous men in all of America across classes. So it's kind of like, imagine if you'd said you'd seen Barack Obama or Donald Trump on the street. There's just no way you would confuse him for someone else. And so, somebody saw Hoffa get into a burgundy car, either a Lincoln or a Mercury, with three people in it. And that was the last time anyone ever saw Jimmy Hoffa alive. Hoffa's car was found around 7.30 in the morning by Linto the next day, and after Hoffa hadn't been seen, he was reported missing at 6pm. In August, they found the car Hoffa had supposedly entered a burgundy Mercury Marquis, which belonged to Tony Jack's son, Joseph. It had an odd stain in it. Joseph alleged that that was due to some gutted fish he'd been transporting in the car a few days prior to Hoffa's disappearance, the fish being delivered by none other than Hoffa's own foster son, of sorts, Charles Chucky O'Brien. Chucky had been a long-time associate of Hoffa's, and even was sort of like a foster son to him. He was Hoffa's protege, but their relationship had soured. O'Brien's involvement in Hoffa's disappearance is disputed. On the one hand, Hoffa knew and to an extent trusted him, but on the other hand, not only had they had a falling out, but O'Brien was not the sort of man that would be recruited for such a high-profile job, if that's what it was. O'Brien denied Hoffa ever rented the car, but the strain of their falling out cast a shadow over that relationship. Hoffa's daughter and son both maintained he was almost certainly involved. The car was almost definitely the one that Hoffa was seen getting into. On the 21st of August, police dogs confirmed that Hoffa's scent was there, in the trunk and in the back seat, conveniently where the fish blood had been. And later DNA evidence matched hairs found in the car to Jimmy Hoffa. So as far as we know, this is the car that Jimmy Hoffa got into. But Tony Jack and Tony Pro both had alibis. Tony Jack was at an athletic club all day, very noticeably chatting up people that he did and didn't know, making introductions. Tony Pro was in New Jersey playing cards with his brother. So these cleared them initially, but investigators refused to rule them out because the alibis were almost too good, especially Tony Jack's. So as we talk about the theories, there's basically one sole theory with lots of little offshoots. That Jimmy Hoffa was killed by the Mafia. Investigators have been unable to place any one individual as the one responsible. One inmate in New Jersey, Ralph Picardo, gave some information around four months into the investigation, which allowed a list of suspects to be formed, but all of the suspects took the fifth and refused to talk, so the case went cold. The main theory is that somebody on the payroll of either Tony Pro or Russell Buffalino killed Hoffa. The conflict between the two was the whole reason the meeting was taking place. Moreover, Tony Pro had Fitzsimmons wrapped around his little finger and was absolutely not keen to see Hoffa's return to power and he'd even reportedly threatened to, quote, pull his guts out if Hoffa returned to his old position. One suspect is Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman, 
a mob hitman and serial killer. He explained in a prison interview that, at the orders of Russell Buffalino, he assassinated Hoffa for $40,000. He drove to Michigan with four others, Tony Pro, Salvatore and Gabriel Briguglio, and one Thomas Andretta, and picked up Hoffa. They knocked him out, stabbed him in the head with a hunting knife, and put him in a car that was crushed and sold as scrap. Some FBI investigators believe him, but most consider him to be little more than a liar, because he had previously attempted to claim other crimes for his own legacy that he hadn't been involved in. Theory number two is that Salvatore Broguglio killed Hoffa at Roland McMaster's horse ranch. McMaster's was involved with the Teamsters as an enforcer, and in an interview with Broguglio before his death, it seemed to confirm this theory. In 2006, the FBI, however, searched the horse ranch for Hoffa's remains or any traces of him to no avail. Broguglio claimed that the body had been taken to a landfill in New Jersey, but again, investigators dispute this because the idea is that transporting a body over such a long distance is far more difficult than disposing it of it in a local location, therefore making it less likely. Then there's the Irishman, Frank Sheeran. Before he died in a nursing home in 2003, Sheeran had spent some time in interviews with author Charles Brandt, part interview and part confession. In his 2004 book, I Heard You Paint Houses, Brandt published a narrative telling Sheeran's story. He was hired originally as a driver for the Teamsters, but became something of a personal assassin for Jimmy Hoffa, getting involved as a mob associate. Sheeran's claims that they drove to an abandoned home where he shot Hoffa in the back of the head. Hoffa was then cremated in a local mob-owned funeral parlour. Sheeran said that he felt extremely guilty. He was Hoffa's close friend and a sort of confidant, but he had been told that if he didn't turn on Hoffa, he would also be killed. So on the day of the hit, he sat in the front seat of the car, the seat that Hoffa always sat in, to try and warn him. But this apparently went unheeded. Hoffa's son has stated, in response to this, that Sheeran, more than anyone else, was trusted by Hoffa, and his presence would have enabled the mob to get Hoffa into the car. Sheeran's own religiosity is also an element. A devout Catholic, for him, confession isn't a small deal. Compared to someone like Kuklinski, who would frequently claim killings that he didn't do for the sake of fame, Sheeran wasn't the braggadocious type. Buffalino's involvement is interesting, as is Fitzsimmons. Secret tapes reveal that Fitzsimmons was involved in the deal with Nixon to get Hoffa released, but that he was also involved in the stipulation against Hoffa's union activity. Basically, he wanted Hoffa's loyalists to support him, but he didn't want Jimmy Hoffa to actually make a comeback. Buffalino supported Fitzsimmons in this viewpoint, that Hoffa would be a useful tool, but could no longer be relied upon as an associate. Leaked documents reveal that in total almost a million dollars went from, allegedly, the mob to Nixon to help seal Hoffa's bailout. But Hoffa wasn't happy with this. His threats to potentially go public with this information and other bits like the Teamsters Fund indicate that. Then a guy called Matt Birkbeck published an article linking Russell Buffalino to CIA activity in Cuba. Buffalino was then setting out to prevent any more information from being linked. Three figures all posed a threat to him. Sam Giancana, Joseph Roselli, two mobsters, and Jimmy Hoffa, who were all apparently going to talk to the committee investigating the CIA's activities in Cuba, and then all of them died in mysterious ways. Giancana, who had at one point been the boss of the Chicago outfit, was shot multiple times. Roselli was found decomposing in an oil drum floating in the Gulf of Mexico. But I couldn't find any solid sources linking Jimmy Hoffa to this. The latter two were almost certainly killed by the Florida mob based out of Tampa for their knowledge, or possibly by the CIA themselves, but whether Hoffa was killed by Buffalino due to this involvement is unclear. There is a final theory, of course, that Jimmy Hoffa isn't dead. But if he isn't dead, where is he? 
As of 2020, he would be 107 years old. So, yeah, he's probably dead. But what if he didn't die in July of 1975? Well, some have suggested he's in the custody of the mob. Others claim he ran off to South America. But it's all like Elvis or Tupac. The idea that he didn't die has no evidence. As far as we know, the man is dead. But unlike Elvis and Tupac, we don't have bodies to confirm it. And so the Hoffa case is still open, but is considered inactive. Every mob capo under the sun has claimed some knowledge of the case. But nobody's saying anything. So what do I think happened to Jimmy Hoffa? I think he was probably killed by the Irishman, Frank Sheeran, acting on the orders of Russell Buffalino and Tony Pro. Now, Sheeran's story does have holes in it. Several articles have suggested some timeline issues that prevent it from being a perfect testimony. But the fact of the matter is this. Let's say the car rolls up and it's being driven by Chucky O'Brien, Hoffa's protege who's currently in something of a spat with him. In the car is also Tony Pro, who Hoffa is openly hostile with, and one or two other mob mooks. Why would Hoffa get in the car? Surely he'd have known it was a trap. It could be that Hoffa was far too cocky for his own good, but if he was already on edge due to suspicions about the mob, he would not have taken that ride. I think it's far more likely that, as Hoffa's own son suggests, somebody in the car he trusted was there, possibly O'Brien, but far more likely Sheeran, that he, the Irishman among the Italians, would have calmed Hoffa enough to get in, where the trail ends. Whether Sheeran actually killed Hopper is another matter, but his presence in the car, that is to say the car that we're almost certain, using DNA evidence, that Hopper was in, I think is likely. Why Hopper was killed tends towards the practical, I believe. I think it had more to do with Fitzsimmons being the favourite of the mob, and them not wanting the openly hostile Hopper to reclaim the title. I think in terms of information, the more relevant morsel is the knowledge of the pension fund's disappearances and the loans for the casinos than anything going on with the CIA in Cuba. I think Tony Pro's vendetta was not the sole cause of the death. Because of what we talked about earlier, the commission, you can't just kill someone without express permission from one of the bigwigs. Buffalino was a bigwig, Tony Pro wasn't. But Buffalino would have been sympathetic to the allegation about a racially motivated remark made by Hopper against Tony Pro, and he would have taken Tony Pro's side on that matter. None of the people involved with this ever went down for it. Some got murdered themselves. Others were arrested, some died in prison, a handful are alive today. But what's the lesson here? Well, there's several. Mostly, don't get involved in the mob. It's a classic Faustian bargain, selling your soul for fame and glory. But you gotta know that the piper will demand the payment and you can't refuse. For Hoffa, though, he could have made it out. If he'd have taken Nixon's pardon and retired gracefully, he might have been the only man to play the mob and win. Maybe Buffalino would have let him go. But men like that don't ever stop. The same reason he got involved with the mob in the first place brought him straight back. He used mob muscle to break up other unions in Detroit. And for people like Hoffa, it's like a steroid. You take that one injection, and you feel like you can lift a mountain. Because you can. Because someone else is lifting with you. But once it's in your system, you can't get it out. You need to keep taking it to feel normal. Hoffa's dealings in Vegas. More money, more power. It's cyclical. And once they've got their hooks in you, you're never getting those hooks out. And again, we go back to Hoffa's own miscalculation of his own position. He thought himself an equal partner of the mob, and he was a very, very powerful man. Unfortunately, when you're dealing with people like the Mafia, 
there's no such thing as equal partners. There's them and there's you, and you are not equal to them. So Hoffer tried to go back to the Teamsters. He played one hand too many and he lost the draw. But more than that, make sure you only ever bite off as much as you can chew. How many top dogs have choked trying to make sure that the alpha gets the biggest bite? It's a matter of attitude. If you always act like the person to beat, someone will try to beat you. Hell, things like the commission was set up to try and curb that attitude. Sure, there'll be a hierarchy, but everybody gets a piece of the pie and we all do things peacefully. That wasn't Hoffa's game plan. His total centralization of teams to power in himself was the opposite approach. The problem is, if you make yourself indispensable like that, you also make yourself the only target that anybody needs to take down. And in the case of both the Attorney General and the mob, that means you're always in their sights. The mystery of Jimmy Hopper is one of those where, despite us basically never being able to solve it, we're pretty sure we know what happened. Jimmy Hopper was killed by the mob. Who killed him and how? We don't know. And it can't be proven. And it likely never will be proven. So with that, we close the book, for now at least, on the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Support us on Patreon from as little as £1 a month at patreon.com slash demystifiedpodcast. And follow us at demystified underscore pod on Twitter. Thanks for listening. I will see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.